You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ignatius Martin Paris spent the night drunk and doing terrible things. He woke the next morning with a headache, put his hands to his temples and felt something unfamiliar, a pair of knobby, pointed protuberances. He was so ill, wet-eyed and weak, he didn't think anything of it at first, was too hungover for thinking or worry. But when he was swaying over the toilet, he glanced at himself in the mirror over the sink and saw he had grown horns while he slept. He lurched in surprise, and for the second time in twelve hours, he pissed on his feet. After it was dark, he opened the hatch and found the teeming faithful gathered in the room beyond, waiting to hear the word. Ig emerged from the chimney, and the crawling carpet of snakes, a thousand of them at least, lying on top of one another, braided together in mad tangles, cleared a path for him to the heap of bricks in the center of the floor. He climbed to the top of the little hill and settled himself with his pitchfork and his second bottle of wine. From his perch upon the low mound, he ministered to them. It is a matter of faith that the soul must be guarded, lest it be ruined and consumed, Ig told them. Christ himself forewarned his apostles to beware him who would destroy their souls in hell. I advise you now that such a fate is a mathematical impossibility. The soul may not be destroyed. The soul goes on forever. Like the number pi, it is without cessation or conclusion. Like pi, it is a constant. Pi is an irrational number, incapable of being made into a fraction, impossible to divide from itself. So, too, the soul is an irrational, indivisible equation that perfectly expresses one thing, you. The soul would be no good to the devil if it could be destroyed, and it is not lost when placed in Satan's care, as is so often said. He always knows exactly how to put his finger on it. A thick brown rope of snake dared to climb the pile of bricks, Ig felt it moving across his bare left foot, but paid it no mind at first, intending instead to the spiritual needs of his flock. Satan has long been known as the adversary, but God fears women even more than he fears the devil, and is right to. She, with her power to bring life into the world, was truly made in the image of the Creator, not man, and in all ways has proved herself a more deserving object of man's worship than Christ, that unshaven fanatic who lusted for the end of the world. God saves, but not now, and not here. His salvation is on layaway. Like all grifters, he asks you to pay now and take it on faith that you will receive later. Whereas women offer a different sort of salvation, more immediate and fulfilling. They don't put off their love for a distant, ill-defined eternity, but make a gift of it in the here and now, frequently to those who deserve it least. So it was in my case, so it is for many. The devil and woman have been allies against God from the beginning, ever since Satan came to the first man in the form of a snake, and whispered to Adam that true happiness was not to be found in prayer, but in Eve's cunt. The snakes writhed and hissed and fought for space at his feet. They bit one another in a state close to rapture. The thick brown snake at Ig's feet began to twist around one of his ankles. He bent and lifted her in one hand, peering down at her at last, She was the color of dry, dead autumn leaves, aside from a single orange stripe that ran along her back, and at the end of her tail was a short, dusty rattle. Ig had never seen a rattle on a snake, outside of Clint Eastwood movies. 
She allowed herself to be hoisted in the air, made no effort to get away. The serpent peered back at him through golden eyes, crinkled like some kind of metallic foil and with long, slotted pupils. Her black tongue flicked out, tasting the air. The cool material of her skin felt as loose on the muscle beneath as an eyelid closed over an eye. Her tail, but perhaps it was wrong to speak of tails, the whole thing was a tail, with a head stuck on one end, hung down against Ig's arm. After a moment, Ig looped the viper over his shoulders, wearing her like a loose scarf or like an unknotted tie. Her rattle lay against his naked chest. He stared out at his audience, had forgotten what he was saying. He tipped his head back and had a sip of wine. It burned going down, a sweet swallowed flame. Christ, at least, was right in his love of devil drink, which, like the fruit of the garden, brought with it freedom and knowledge and certain ruination. Ig exhaled smoke and remembered his argument. Look at the girl I loved and who loved me and how she ended. She wore the cross of Jesus about her neck and was faithful to the church, which never did anything for her except take her money from the collection plate and call her a sinner to her face. She kept Jesus in her heart every day and prayed to him every night. And you see the good it did her. Jesus on his cross. So many have wept for Jesus on his cross, as if no one else has ever suffered as he suffered, as if millions have not shuffled to worse deaths and died unremembered. Would I had lived in the time of Pilate. It would have pleased me to twist the spear in his side myself, so proud of his own pain. Marin and I were to each other like man and wife, but she wanted more than me, wanted freedom, a life, a chance to discover herself. She wanted other lovers and wanted me to take other lovers as well. I hated her for this. So did God. For simply imagining she might open her legs to another man, he turned his face from her, and when she called to him, as she was raped and murdered, he pretended he did not hear. He felt, no doubt, that she received her due. I see God now as an, un as an unimaginative writer of popular fictions, someone who builds stories around sadistic and graceless plots, narratives that exist only to express his terror of a woman's power to choose who and how to love, to redefine love as she sees fit, not as God thinks it ought to be. The author is unworthy of his own characters. The devil is first a literary critic who delivers this untalented scribbler the public flaying he deserves. Um, that's the devil's sermon. Joe Hill is the author of the short story collection 20th Century Ghosts and the novel Heart-Shaped Box. He writes an occasional comic series, Lock and Key. His new novel is Horns. Thank you for speaking with me, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. I appreciate it. Joe, it strikes me reading this book that it's really like a, a fable or a Greek myth for George Thorogood fans. <laughs> well, it is. it is a story about the devil in a tradition, a long tradition of American stories about the devil. These stories have, go back to the 19th and 18th century, and they're always more or less about the same thing, which is this idea that eventually the wicked and the unworthy will meet their, get their just desserts on the business end of the devil's pitchfork. And, uh, um, you know, that's just, it's a, it is a kind of American folktale and in a tradition of those American folktales. I love the, that's really great the way that you mentioned that because it really, this book, even though it's about sex and drugs and rock and roll and staying up all night and murder and mayhem, it really has the feel of making all that Americana. Yeah. Well, that's that's a big influence for me. That's, you know, I think that, that for me, 
you know, I've always responded to traditional forms of storytelling, uh, whether it's Grimm's fairy tales or, or the Jewish magic realists like Isaac Bashiva Singer or uh, Bernard Malman in his fantasy mode. You know, these are writers who look to older forms and, and you know, and a kind of straightforward form of storytelling where, where you have these fable-like qualities. Uh, um, you have ordinary life, an ordinary village or an ordinary small town, and then the devil will arrive and, and walk into people's lives, and everyone has to deal with it, but they sort of accept it. They feel like the devil has a place in the real world. Uh, in one of the things that's nice about this book, you say real world, and but I'd also suggest there's a, it's a very surreal kind of novel in, in that um, it it's well it's Kafka esque. He the opening reminds me very much of the Metamorphosis. Yeah, in some ways, you know, the the book is not a three hundred and seventy page theological argument. Uh, in it's. It is it, and in some ways, its influences are as much Kafka as anything you'd find in the Bible. I've I've gone back to the Metamorphosis a couple of times. Horns is actually my second reflection on the Metamorphosis. I wrote a short story years ago called "You Will Hear the Locust Sing," mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. about a boy. It was it's it's about a boy who wakes up one day and discovers he's turned into a giant locust, and it was so, sort of supposed to be a gag on those great old giant insect movies, the 1950s, like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when it, that story came about, I had just read The Metamorphosis and thought it was one of the most profound stories I'd ever read. And I was in Florida, and I was riding a bike around in, my, in bare feet, and I stopped for a moment, I put my foot down in a hill of red ants and just got that heck chewed out of me. And, and it reminded me in The Metamorphosis, we have this character who turns into a cockroach and then kind of wilts away in despair. But it reminded me that most insects have a lot more fight in them. So I did this story, you will hear the locust sing about a, about a guy who changes into a giant bug. And instead of being horrified and despairing, he loves it. It's actually all his dreams come true. And then Horns is a more elaborate you know, sort of reflection on this idea of transformation and the possibility of being transformed into something horrible, something fearsome, and yet finding freedom in it and and you know, freedom and power and the possibility to affect positive change. And, and maybe finding out who you really are and accepting who you really are. I, I, you know, I read an essay by Michael Chabon where he talked about writers' fixations, really their obsessions, mm-hmm. you know, and he talked about John Irving with his bears, and he talked about Nabokov with chess and butterflies, and he talked about some of his own obsessions, and he, and he said, you know, I don't really, I don't know why I keep writing about these things. I just know I can't help myself. And in my case... You know, I've written two novels and, you know, probably 15 short stories that were 15, 20 short stories that were actually worth, that were worth reading. And, and it's a small body of work. So I, I still have a lot to explore. And But still, even though I've only produced a small amount of work, I look at it and I see a lot of common themes that recur. And one is the idea of of taking a new identity, dropping your old life, walking away from your old skin and, and settling into a new skin and taking on a new identity, a larger than life and possibly grotesque identity, but nevertheless finding freedom in it and, and strength. Uh, that's in Horns, where we have a good and decent man, Ig Parish, who's, you know, he's always tried to do the right thing and then reinvents himself as a devil. But it's also true of the novel that preceded it, Heart Shaped Box, is in part 
about uh, uh, this lonely, abused hick from Louisiana, you know, Justin Krasinski. And one day when he's 17, he grabs his guitar and he gets on a Greyhound bus. And when he gets off in New York City 17, 17 hours later, he's reinvented himself as a kind of rock and roll devil named Judas Coyne. And he starts a completely new life. And um, that idea of transformation, of reinventing yourself is, is something I, I keep exploring. And is also a common theme to American fiction. You know, we see it in Gatsby. And, uh, and in a lot of other uh, American works, this idea that America is a place where you can reinvent yourself. And, and the kind of reinvention that you talk about in this book, I think we see this in uh, a lot of the characters in, in, in this supernatural trope that you employ of the touch that reveals, uh, the presence that reveals people's true thoughts. It strikes me that this is also a book about doppelgangers, that there's another one of us within all of us. There's the one of us that we show the world, and there's the other one that we don't show the world. And they're the same person. Yeah, there's a there's a one reviewer looked at it and, and it was a very complimentary review, but said, you know, it really blows off, you know, it really looks at the hypocrisy of small town life because we have all these people who pretend to care and pretend to be decent and really they have these horrid inner lives. And while I enjoyed the review because it was very positive, the guy said nice things about my book, I felt that that was actually somewhat off base, that that was a little bit, a little bit wrong. Um, because I, in the story, Ig Parrish wakes up one morning and he discovers he's he's grown this pair of horns and he goes he, first thing he does is he goes to see the doctor which is what I'd do and he goes to see a priest he goes to see his parents looking for help no one really wants to help him all they want to do is make these hideous confessions and talk about their ugliest secrets and and their dirtiest impulses and you know he this is part of having the powers of a devil but but I think that, you know, even though Ig has to face a lot of darkness, he struggles to hang on to his own humanity, and he refuses to believe that's the whole picture. And and I, I don't believe that's the whole picture either. I think that everyone has their dark side. Everyone has thoughts they wish they didn't think. Everyone has done at least one thing in their life that is painful to think about. And when they think about it, they think, why did I do that? Why, why was I so ignorant? You know, why did, why did I let that person down so badly? I wish I could take that back. Everyone has, has their set of grotesque mistakes and grotesque thoughts. Uh, but, you know, the quality of a person is defined by how they rise above those and, and you know, their ability not to act on them. Yeah, it's what we do, not what we think that really That's matters. right. It's, there's an old, there's, Picasso talked about an old Spanish proverb, love is proved by facts, not reasons. You know, and that's a big motto for me and, and uh, it's something I believe. And that's also in the book that, you know, ultimately the characters are really defined not by the secrets the devil knows about them, but by what, by the choices they make, uh, what they decide to do. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so, uh, so anyway, that, so that's where I was coming from in the book and, and hopefully that's, that's something positive people can take from what is a pretty dark and upsetting story. <laughs> uh, well, you call it dark and upsetting. I, I, I found it somewhat uh, strangely life affirming. <laughs> but you might. You, you, but you're an unhealthy person, and I've known that almost from the moment I sat down with you. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, no, it has. It has. It's. It. It. It has. You know. 
this in the opening hundred pages, Ig goes through this uh, Kafkaesque nightmare. It's really the first hundred pages when he's searching for help and no one will help him. Is it, I wanted it when I wrote it to play like a paranoid fantasy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Hitchcock was the master of this. Hitchcock would back in the day when Hitchcock was making his pictures, people felt that he was a horror director. Now we look back at Hitchcock and we say, oh, he did suspense, he did crime, because mm-hmm. it seems very different from our picture of what horror is today. When we think about horror, we think about the guy in the hockey mask and teenagers hanging from meat hooks. But Hitchcock, Hitchcock was making horror, and and his, you know, his what he was the master of was these wrong man scenarios where someone appears to be guilty of a crime, and they turn to their friends, and all their friends turn out to actually be working against them, and it, there's no authority they can trust, no authority they can go to, and they find themselves on the run and completely severed from society and friendless. And, and that's what Ig experiences in the first hundred pages. But I also wanted it to be more than that. And so so even though he's in, after he discovers the horns and he's dealing with these new powers, that's frightening. But the story occasionally flips back in time to better days. And we get to see Ig at his best. And over the course of the story, he's struggling to get back to that, to, you know, um, his best qualities and, and his his best hopes for himself. You know, when you were talking about Hitchcock, I was thinking that, you know, if if Hitchcock made the movie for the the first hundred pages, you would never see Ig's horns. You might see his face, but you would never see his horns. You'd see the shadow on the wall. Yeah. As he walked down the stairwell, you'd see the shadow of the horns on the wall, but he'd frame, yeah, he'd probably frame the shot so that you didn't see them. But, uh, um, you know, I think I think that... that the definition of horror, what people think of as horror, is often really not not quite hitting the mark. To me, horror is always rooted in sympathy. You know, mm-hmm. horror is about identifying with a person, seeing a person that you can that you can love and care about, and then seeing them suffer the worst. You know, and rooting for them and being afraid for them. And where modern horror often falls down is we get these characters who are just kind of, you know, I go back to the, you know, the the hockey mask movies, the the torture porn films like Saw or whatever where essentially every character is disposable and they're just they're just, you know, marbles rolling through a Rube Goldberg machine and you're just waiting to see how they'll be destroyed, how they'll fall into the pit. And uh and to me that isn't particularly interesting to me. You know, I really hope that that I can make a, an emotional connection that my characters, you know, the, the characters at the center of my stories, will, readers will be able to make an emotional connection with them. Then I can put the reader through hell because they've got someone to care about. One of the things that I think is uh, interesting about this book uh, is this idea of blasphemy. And we get it right from, from the get-go. And you remind us of, of uh, very famous artwork that said the, the right wing of, of America, uh, they're, they set their hair on fire. Um, I'm thinking of, of uh, Piss Christ. Oh, well, I don't, I don't know that the, I don't really think that the book is all that controversial in a religious way. Uh, you know, you've got a recording of me reading Ig's fire sermon when he, you know, he delivers this horrifying speech, this kind of, you know, this terrible sermon to a room full of snakes. But but Ig is at his lowest point then, his lowest and angriest point, and and is very drunk to boot, and uh, is is wrestling with the darkness in his own soul and with other people's souls. But but I actually one of the things the the book looks at is the the nature of the devil, the problematic nature of the devil. Mm-hmm. On the one hand. 
it's the understanding is that God and the devil are, are opponents in some vast universal war that, that the devil is God's adversary, is the adversary. At the same time, God hates sin and the devil punishes sinners, which kind of makes it sound like they're working on the same side of the street, uh, that they might actually have the same intentions. And in the story of Job, we have a devil-like figure who, who questions what God, you know, who challenges God uh, about his beliefs in, in what man is capable of. And, you know, and that's, that's, that is partially the role that the devil plays in, in both uh, religious texts and also in folk tales, you know, that he's sort of the person who upsets the social order and reveals the secrets and, and asks serious questions about human nature. Um, but, but I actually think that, that Ig is a basically decent and good man and that his intentions wind up as low as he goes and as dark as he gets, uh, that his intentions essentially, his intentions and his actions essentially are forces for, for good. And, uh, you know, um, so, so I actually think, I actually think that the book is relatively not, relatively uncontroversial, um, as far as, you know, it is evil is, it, it explores the idea that some evil should be punished and that, and that also it's possible to forgive the worst in people. Um, you know, Ig sees the worst in a lot of people that he loves over the course of the story, mm -hmm. but he also finds the power that he has the power to forgive them for their mistakes. And so in that way, I don't, I don't actually think it's a particularly surprising or objectionable message. Well, I wouldn't say the, the book is controversial in that regard, but I think you use those kind of images well to really, like, as a great kind of shorthand to disturb the reader Yeah. in terms of creating a sense of tension and unease so that when the unreal things start happening, we're already kind of a little bit out of joint and, and out of kilter. Well, it's impossible to write about a devil or the devil without exploring what's blasphemous. You mm -hmm. know, the the you know, it's a it's a pretty safe bet that uh, whatever the devil does, um, you know, it's 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 not going to be. Uh, he's not going to. He he may be many things, but pious he ain't. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to explore the idea of salvation without really getting down on all fours and wallowing in some nice and nasty sin. And certainly the book is a real survey of, of you know, all kinds of nastiness and perversion. I mean, I, when I go on the road, you know, about a week before the book came out, I realized I was going to have to do a book, book tour and read from the book. And, and I began flipping through it, and it was one chapter after another of ungodly perversion. And I was thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I, I, I'm going to have to read the dust jacket. Eventually, I did find a story from uh, uh, a flashback to the happier days of Ig's youth, which is only sort of R-rated. But, yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a, a, a filthy book um, in many ways. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think is interesting in this book is this idea of, and this is somewhat tied to blasphemy, is this idea of getting uh, permission to sin that uh, your uh, Ig's effect on people is to give them permission to give in to their kind of dark right. impulses. And that, I think that's an interesting notion. <laughs> um, yeah, well, this is, this is again, this re you know, I have this idea. I really struggled with horns. I struggled with horns for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I had all this success with Heart Shaped Box, and, and it was very exciting. It was all my daydreams coming true at once. But then I fell into a little bit of the second novel trap, and I worked on some things that, that you know, that didn't quite pan out. 
But eventually horns did come to life for me. And I think it's because it, at the center of it, it's the devil. and you, You've got this study of the devil. And I, I actually think that maybe every story needs the devil in him. You know, in it that you don't have a story until you have until the devil walks out on stage. You know that you need that character with the pitchfork to chase people into their temptations and and to upset you know the stable system of everyday life. And uh, you know, and I love that. I love when when the whole world is turned upside down and people begin doing. People start giving in to all the nasty temptations that you know they've been sitting on for years. This is also this is also the devil as he appears in rock and roll. You know, I really wanted to write about a rock and roll devil mm-hmm. when I did horns and 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 in in jazz and in blues and in rock and roll. Whenever whenever we've got the devil in a song, he always represents that temptation that you ought to hurry up and give into. And uh, that's sort of a fun devil to write about and you know it it strikes me the devil is really a a central figure in in rock and roll and and in jazz and blues could you talk about kind of you have obviously have a big interest in music do you do you play anything i only just started to learn how to play guitar about a year ago but I, i i always have listened to music you know, I, I've always been a guy who, when I'm, I sit down to work, uh, you know, I put on some heavy metal and I turn the volume up to 11 and I crank away until the last couple of years. In the last couple of years, I found that it's necessary for me to turn the music off when I'm working on dialogue because it's the only way to clearly hear the voices in my head. And, and the very best thing about being a writer is I can talk to people about listening to voices in my head, sitting in a silent room and hearing those voices. And people always smile and think, oh, how creative, you know. But if your investment banker, you know, talked about spending five, six hours a day alone in a room listening to the voices in his head, you know, you'd probably invest with someone else. But... uh you know, but but uh, music is music is very important to me, and every story I've ever worked on has developed its own playlist. You know, and that I listen to repetitively, and then maybe we'll never listen to those songs again after the story is over. But there's a lot of music. There's a lot of music in rock and roll to choose from. You know, the rock bible is fairly deep, and uh, of course, the sympathy for the devil and and uh, hell by Squirrel Nut Zippers, and but. Maybe the song that most interested me while I was working on this is by this alternative rock band called OK Go. They wrote a song called Good Idea at the Time that is a line-by-line answer to Sympathy for the Devil. And essentially the song suggests that, uh, that the, the devil is kind of a cop-out. We don't really, you know, we, we'd like to blame the devil for everything that's wrong in the world. You know, war, disease, cell phones. You know, he's on the hook for all of it. But really, we're bad enough without him. We don't, we, we don't really need the devil. You know, and I think that's partially what, that's, I didn't set out. I, this is not what I thought I would, the conclusion I thought I would come to. But by the time I was done working on the first draft of Horns, that was also what I was thinking, is that humanity, the devil is more of a spectator laughing at us. And that humanity is pretty good at, at you know, at generating evil on its own yeah the 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 monsters in this book are are more often uh you know nice looking folks in politics and uh, this brings up uh it seems that that there's a almost a theme of if you if you're working not if you're not not necessarily if you're the politician but if you work with the politician the the chances are that you're you're deeply evil well, I think that's very American. I think the idea that everyone involved in politics is secretly an agent of the devil is deeply ingrained, an idea deeply ingrained in the American soul. But, you know, again, you know, I, I wanted to sort of poke at this old idea Mark Twain talked. I think it was maybe it was Mark Twain. Maybe it goes back before Mark Twain, that old line that, you know, um, uh, you know, 
uh, the devil can always use scripture to his own advantage. You know, I did want to sort of poke at the idea that just because someone is outwardly pious, uh, you know, they don't necessarily believe the things you believe. They're not necessarily the good guys. Um, and, you know, so, uh, the, and, and, you know, there's this, you know, there's this idea in American politics, the more outwardly moral you appear, you know, the more you may be covering up your own dirt, you know, but, but, but again, I don't think that the book, the book doesn't really have a political agenda. You know, it just looks at the idea that, you know, um, it, it, all I tried to look at was the idea that in it's possible for someone to appear clean and good and focused on the common good, but inwardly have no kind of emotional center and, and really be, you know, a sort of terrifying, be a sort of human demon. And uh, there is one character, there's a character named uh, Lee Torneau, I don't think it's any big spoiler, um, who appears to be a, re, you know, uh, a decent man, uh, but is in fact a, a complete and total sociopath because he has no capacity for love. Now, to me, that's more interesting than, than any political question is why, why is, why, why does evil exist? Why, why are people vicious or cruel? And, and, um, I heard a reviewer once, a reviewer once said about a movie, the movie was a failure. He's talking about an action film. He said the movie is a failure because it's not about anything except itself. And that really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, you know, the action movie was a bad action movie because it's just about guys hitting each other and stuff blowing up. And, and you know, people turn to fiction to approach questions that they're almost a little afraid to look at in everyday life. They want stories to ask big questions. Um, I think that we use fiction to approach big, scary questions in the same way someone will wear lead-lined gloves to handle a radioactive substance. And some of those questions are like, what would it be like to die a bad death, to really, you know, to die in pain and to die alone? We don't want to think about this in everyday life, but we can approach it in a story. And another question, and this is really a question that was on my mind while I worked on Horns, is, you know, why, why does evil exist in the world? And if you're a religious person and you believe in a loving and benevolent God, you ask yourself, well, why, why, you know, why do we live in a world where an orphanage can collapse in Haiti and, and you know, crush a bunch of little kids? That's a pretty difficult question to answer. And, and, and my book doesn't answer it because I don't know. You know, I have no clue. And I think sometimes offering the easy pat answer is arrogant. You know, um, all you can do is poke at the question and hope the reader will find the way to their own answers. I think when you give that neat pat moral homily, you know, you wind up risking that, you know, the story would be in a really lousy Highway to Heaven episode or something. I wanted to stay away from that. No, no, this is more like the Highway to Hell episode. It is more like <laughs> Highway to Hell. That's right. Um, one of the things that I think you do extremely well in this book is uh, create some wonderful, uh, you architect very carefully some, some great uh, character arcs from here. And uh, so could you talk about, for example, we have Iggy Parrish, and I'm hoping that this has something to do with Iggy Pop, who's... <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be great? No, I wasn't really. I, I decided to name him uh, name him Ignatius both because you have the idea of of ignite, mm -hmm. you know, of flames, but also because I just wanted I like the idea of having a character who had the shortest a protagonist who had the shortest name in recent fiction, you know, and you've got Ig. It's just two letters, you know, and I just thought that was so great, Ig, you know, and um, you got to get your jollies out where you can. So, um, so there's that anyway. Well, talk about uh, creating some of these character arcs, uh, you know, right. especially um, Ig's character arc. But we also have um, Marin, we have uh, Lee Tourneau, Terry. Right. There's there's a, a variety of these of these characters, 
and you weave their stories in and out of time. Um, as a writer, when you're conceiving this kind of the journey that, say, Ig makes and the journey that Terry makes and the journey that right. uh, Lee makes, do you see them lay out in parallel and then reorganize them to suit your interests? Well, I don't outline because the, mm -hmm. I believe that outlines are the tools of the devil. You uh, know, I just work scene <laughs> by scene and uh -huh. character by character and fumble my way along. And then whatever is ugly or doesn't make sense, I revisit in the rewrite and hopefully clean things up. But I, I mentioned earlier that, that fiction, you know, fiction is a, a tool we use to approach big and upsetting questions, you know. Um, another thing, though, that we use fiction for is, you know, in the most important moments of our life, there's so little we understand, you know. Uh, we don't, you know, the most important moments pass us by and we just get a tiny little scrap of information about what happened, you know. And in fiction, you can examine an event obsessively and closely from many different points of view. And there's the illusion, at least, that you can understand what really went down, what really happened. And so, so the story you know, uses a recursive format to revisit uh, this one awful night in the lives of four, the four central characters, Ig, Terry, Marin, and Lee Tourneau. And that's the night that Marin dies. And first we get that scene from Ig's point of view where, you know, Marin is his childhood sweetheart and he's always loved her. And then she unexpectedly breaks up with him in a horrifying conversation when they really they really bear their ugliest thoughts to each other. And, and he storms out and his disappearance, people overhear this fight and his disappearance leads people to believe that he, he killed her that evening, even though there's no real proof of that. You know, it's interesting that they bear their ugliest thoughts. It's like he has the horns before he has the horns. Yeah, well, huh? he says to her at one point during that argument, this does, this takes place before, well before his year, a year before his transformation, and and Ig says to her, you know, he begins to grill her about her private life and who else she might have seen and, and what she's done and how far she's gone. And she says, why do you want to know all this? And he says, I want to know every dirty secret because it'll make make it easier for me to hate you. And this is this is also when we wonder about the devil, you know, if you want a motive for the devil being the way he is. If he knows all our worst temptations, if what the devil sees is the ugliest, the ugliest secret, everyone's ugliest secrets, no wonder he hates humanity, you know, <laughs> and that he's, he gets his face rubbed in the dirt. But so, so, we have, so we have this scene, this horrendous breakup scene from Ig's point of view. Then later we return to it from Terry's point of view because after Ig flees the scene, uh, Marin winds up getting into a car with uh, Terry and Lee Tourneau. And so we get the scene, and suddenly we learn a whole lot more about how she felt that evening and what she was going through. We start to see it a little more from her point of view and from someone else's point of view. And, and then again, we see the scene once more, much later in the book, from the point of view of Lee Tourneau, and it's a, it's it's the whole thing is being seen through blood red glass. It's just a terrible. Lee Tourneau is a, a sociopath in the Dennis Rader mold. You know uh, the bind torture kill guy. He's not a guy who can understand other people's feelings. Um, and and we see that. And for the first time, we really see uh, we really see Marin as a victim who's fallen into a terrible situation well beyond her control. And finally, we get the story at the very close to the end. We get the story one more time, and we sort of get it, we sort of get it from, from Marin's point of view. And my idea is, if you know, this is what's great about fiction is it's, it's the possibility of freezing a moment and then turning it 90 degrees and looking at it from a different 
point of view and then turning it another 90 degree degrees and looking at it from a different point of view. And I think that for a reader, that can be very empowering. And, and that idea of peeling away a moment to see the next layer of the onion, you know, I think can be uh, can be powerful and is a good reason to read. Well, one of the things that I was as I was reading this book, I was thinking that this is a book that gets very deeply into these characters, but in a way you could only do using the supernatural tropes that you use, that you make that to tell the story without the supernatural would be impossible in many ways, boring in other ways, but you make the supernatural seem a natural mode for storytelling, and I think that's very interesting. I'm a frustrated mainstream writer. You know, when I first got out of college, I wrote a lot of short stories that were essentially mainstream fiction, stories about divorce, story about stories about children trying to come to terms with difficult parents and a little part of my soul goes to sleep just thinking about those stories they were so boring i mean they were terrible you know and i would send them out to magazines and i would get back these very kind and generous notes from editors saying we admire your craft but these stories don't excite us and i understood what they meant because those stories didn't excite me either and then i read an essay by bernard malamud who was a big influence on me and he wrote an essay called why fantasy and in Why Fantasy, he says, you know, all fiction is make-believe. All fiction is fantasy. And, and the New Jersey of Philip Roth is as much a figment of the imagination as Alice's Wonderland. Uh, you know, it feels like the real New Jersey. It sounds has street names like the real New Jersey, but it doesn't really exist. It only exists in Philip Roth's mind and in the mind of his readers. And, you know, Malmed said realism can be a trap. The idea that there is realism in fiction is a trap. You know, uh, there's you can a writer can write about ghosts or angels or demons, and that can be those can be very potent and powerful metaphors. And I remember being feeling incredibly freed by this essay. And not long afterwards, a couple of days after I read the essay, I was thinking about that phrase pop art, and I thought, what if you did? And I wound up writing this story about a juvenile delinquent and his friendship with Arthur Roth, the inflatable boy. And Art is, he's made of plastic, and he's filled with air. He weighs six ounces, and if he sat in a sharpened pencil, it would kill him. And I, I had so much fun writing this bizarre, strange, surreal story. And I banged it right out, and, and then coincidentally, I, I sold it to the second or third place I sent it. And, and so after that, I've been very willing to let my freak flag fly and, uh, you know, and explore the surreal and, uh, and the strange. And you know, I, I really since that story, I've been doing it ever since. You gave yourself permission to sin. Yeah, I did give myself permission to indulge in a wide variety of literary sins, and there's really been no stopping me since. It's true. Um, one of the things I think that's really remarkable uh, about Horns is the, the plot, the way we get the plot. You use the immediacy of the situation to, uh, as we encounter Ig, he's woken up with horns. We don't know anything about who he is. We don't know boo about what's happened in his life. And you put us right into this perspective. Talk about just using immediacy and then you start to cut back and forth in time and you have, you know, this very uh, carefully uh, um, architected plot. It seems like it must have been required like 15 spreadsheets and huge diagrams on the wall and uh, Venn diagrams. and, and <laughs> Yeah, well, the book was the devil. I mean, in terms of organizing it, you know, it, it is a, a structurally very complicated book and, it, and, it, and, and I don't outline and I don't structure ahead of time. And so the first draft was a, an unholy disaster that I wouldn't care for anyone to see, you know. But 
Um, well, the first thing is, is you know, I, I occasionally moonlight in comic books. And I think that there should be a federal statute requiring everyone who wants to write a novel to spend five years working in comic books or five years working in journalism. Because there are things you learn about economy and timing and developing a story quickly that you can almost only get when you work in those forms. You know, and so, yeah, the story starts with the pedal, the gas pedal already mashed to the floor. You know, Ig wakes up, he has horns, that's pretty bad, and it gets worse in a hurry. But, you know, I think that... that I don't know how to start a story anywhere else than with things bad and getting worse quickly. Um, I think, you know, if, if you started a story with a decent, happy, well-adjusted guy with the two kids and the family and everything's going right, I don't know what you can do with that character except take it all away as fast as possible. <laughs> so, um, you know, and so and so that's good. But then the other thing is you have to watch out for the danger of just rush, rush, rush. You know, just, you know, the next big shock, the next big jolt, uh, you know, uh, just continuing to turn the screw of suspense as hard as you can without any thought to who your characters are or how they got into this situation. You know, again, for horror to be effective, you have to know who the characters are. You have to care about them. You have to have a reason to give a damn. So so we see Ig in the beginning of the book at his worst, but I think for us to value him as a, as a human being, we need to see him at his best. So we have this 100 pages of paranoid fantasy. And then in the second part of the book, there's an almost purely mainstream novella called Cherry. I told you I was a frustrated mainstream writer, and it comes out again in this book. You've got another 100-page story that there's nothing supernatural in. And it, we go back to when Ig was a young man and meeting his love, Marin Williams, for the first time and becoming friends with the troubling figure of Lee Torneau. And we get to see his admiration and love for his older brother. And we get to see how brave a kid Ig is and, and, and how open-hearted and generous. You know, we get to see him taking wonderful risks and doing good for others. And I thought, you know, I thought that my goal for that was to expand his character to the point where when we see him wicked and turning into a devil, you still feel sympathy for him all the, all the same. You're rooting for him, not just to find the person who killed Marin Williams, but to save his own soul, you know? Uh, I, that's absolutely the case. We love him, I think, because he's become the devil, because he gets, there's a, there's a real appeal, I think, to uh, this kind of uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, or in this case, uh, Satan himself. Yeah, well, it's, you know, there is there is an element of, of revenge fantasy, and I think many stories about the devil often are, you know, the idea that, um, you know, uh, God is going to settle things in the afterlife, but maybe the devil can settle things right now, you know, uh, in, in the ugliest no way down. possible. Yeah, no, no waiting, you know, no waiting. Um, you know, so... Uh, so there's a little bit of that, yeah. Um, uh, no, I wasn't going to say, I don't remember what I was going to say. I was going to say, um, you know, for me, it's always nice when a story, you know, if, if a story is a life and death thing, that gives you a reason to keep turning the pages. You know, a character's life is in peril, you care. But when a soul is in peril, in some ways, that's even more exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have a soul to root for, someone who has done terrible things, you know, and you're rooting for them to pull themselves out of the muck and find it in them to be decent and, and you know, do the right thing. That's, that's, that's another one of those themes that I've returned to. Uh, several times you see that in horns and also that's that's true of the main character in heart-shaped box a bad guy you know a person who's done a lot of the wrong things but still has the potential to do the right thing and uh, i always think that that's a character arc that's exciting now one of the things i think you do extremely well is to 
and this is it's difficult to do in a, especially in a novel like this where things are already you know that as you say the pedals to the metal from page one and the volumes you know at, definitely at eleven and there's a point in here where you manage to put your character in even more peril than I as a reader could think possible and I think that's that's a that's a mark of a really unique talent yeah uh, well thank you uh, yeah um, well. Like John Irving's bears, uh, you know, or Nabokov's butterflies, uh, I seem to have a thing with uh, people being lit on fire and, uh, you know, uh, fire things, good things being burnt to the ground or people being on fire. Uh, It seems to be maybe I'm a closet arsonist or something. Maybe I have a little bit of that firebug streak. I don't know. But that's in a few stories. And there's definitely a good let's burn things down scene midway through the book. Um, you know, that would be a bad way to go. I mean, that's the other thing is, is, you know, it's a weird business because you spend so many, so much time thinking about what would be a really awful way to die? What would be a really terrible way to die? And, you know, um, it's, it's maybe it's not a healthy fascination, but it does pay well. Well, yes. And I, although I think, uh, the other awful way to die that we hear about (laughs) in this book is and not to give any spoilers but one character at one point um uh is finds himself a caretaker for a a sick mother yeah and you know i i don't know if if you've been there but i i've been in that position and and it's it's a terrifying thing to be a caretaker for somebody who's that sick And, and what happens uh, in the novel is is really quite frightening, and it really I think it's going to really uh, scare, make a lot of people look at themselves and, and be extremely frightened. Not of the devil, not of any of anything that's going to happen outside, but of what is within them. Yeah, the well, I don't think it's any. I don't think it is spoiling anything. The, I'm not interested. Raymond Chandler used to talk about the difference between whodunits and why whodunits, mm-hmm. and he used to say that whodunits are only interesting for a moment, right until you know who the killer is. But why whodunits, why whodunits are something you can really dig into and explore, because that's what, that's really what the fascination is: is not why did someone, not who did some awful thing, but why? Why does you know? Um, why did Dennis Rader feel the need to kill all those people? You know, and and uh, and so so Hornsby does begin with a little bit of a whodunit, who killed Marin Williams. But we get over that in about 90 pages. It's mm. only about 90 pages in. We know, um, you know, uh, we know who did it. And if you're listening to this and you don't want to know, just turn down your radio for three seconds. The killer is Lee Torneau. OK, so so we revisit this. You can tell hopefully your radio is back up now. The uh, the. I said I was a frustrated mainstream writer. Well, there's one part of the book called Cherry, which is a story. It's an exploration of the journey from innocence to experience. It's a childhood story. It's Mm -hmm. a story of childhood love. It's a little bit like, um, you know, my dad is a writer and he wrote a story called The Body, Mm -hmm. which is about childhood innocence. It's a little bit like that. There's another section of the book called The Fixer. And and that's about that's about this character, this sociopath, this terrible sociopath who is responsible for most of the evil in the book. And I wanted that to play like a Jim Thompson novel. Mm-hmm. You know, I really mm-hmm. wanted to. I really you read a Jim Thompson novel like The Killer Inside Me, and you have a protagonist who does something terrible, and you flinch away from you and think, oh. 
that's the worst thing I ever read. Then you turn the page and something even worse happens. And I, I kind of wanted to, I kind of wanted to to explore that and see if I couldn't, you know, couldn't poke at the idea that, you know, yeah, the devil is bad, but but look at some of what humans do to other humans, you know. And there's there is there is, uh, you know, my sociopath is caring for a woman and talk about the person you don't want caring for you, you know, uh, when you're in your last days. And so, yeah, you know, that's pretty dark. One of the things that that makes this novel so much fun to read, and it's a kind of book where you kind of there there are portions of it where I, as a reader, wanted to stop. I'd read it and then I'd go back and I'd read it aloud, and I think that's because that uh, this book is informed by religious language and, and you know the power and the glory and and the eerie, frightening. Uh, uh, perversity often of religious language. Well, yeah, and of course the 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 you know if you want to read a book that's full of terrifying horror movie sequences, you know a book full of uh, perversion and and cosmic justice and peril, you know of course you don't have to look any further than the Old Testament. You know uh, uh, the devil keeps himself busy throughout the Bible, and you know um, so uh, yeah, you know and and. You know, like a lot of writers, like a lot of writers, you know, that language, those kind of moral situations, you know, are inspiring. And so the, it's the material that you play with. And and um, I always think, you know, I, I'm I'm not a postmodern writer. I'm not uh, an experimental writer. You know, I'm very much a traditionalist. And and, you know, uh, if there's anything postmodern or experimental in one of my stories, it probably happened by accident. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm drawn to, you know, those those fable like stories of of, you know, the devil reaching into everyday lives and and turning up the heat or, you know, the the ghost appearing, you know, to show people how the past has never gone. You know, uh, the past has a tendency to keep leaking through and standing the present, you know, and that's why I like to write about ghosts and devils and uh you know, and I think that's why people like to read about ghosts and devils, that, that we're all, we, we all want to be told those traditional stories, you know, those, Horns is not exactly a bedtime story, but we like those traditional fable-like stories. We we were taught to like them as kids, and we still like them when we're grown up. Um, there's so many nice interconnections in this novel to, you know, horror literature and biblical literature. I love that, you know, your, our, our murder victim is is named Marin, yeah, and that her sister is is named Reagan. <laughs> it's very tough to write about the devil without tipping your hat at least once to The Exorcist, and and um, and actually that came fairly late. I, I'm not sure why I named the sister Reagan. At one point, I think Marin was Betty, actually, and then I no one really liked that name, and I was fishing around. Then I realized her sister was named Reagan, and I thought, oh yeah, Father Marin from The Exorcist, so I named her Marin. But um, um, yeah, you know, and. And uh, um, so that that floats around in there and and there's a lot of references to the devil and music and uh, sympathy for the devil. And, uh, you know, I I mean, I have to say that when I was working on the story, I found myself listening to a lot of Kiss, you know, and I had loved (laughs) I had loved Kiss as a little kid. You know, the first concert I ever went to go see was Kiss in Madison Square Garden. And Mm -hmm. I saw Gene Simmons spit blood and breathe fire. And then I fell asleep. You know, I was I was just crazy for Kiss as a little kid. I had, you know, I had the comic books. I had the color form set. I had the Shrinky Dinks. Shrinky Dinks were like the lamest toy of all time. You paid 20 bucks for them and you cut them out of a sheet and you stuck them in the oven and they shrank. 
That's all they did was got you paid for them and cooked them and they got smaller. But I had like the kiss shrinky dinks and everything. And then I tuned that was as a kid in my teenage years. I started wearing flannel and I decided to be unhappy and I stopped listening to kiss. But I came back to him while I was working on horns and I was listening to kiss a lot. And I didn't really think about why, uh, you know, until I was working on the second or third draft. And then for the first time it came to me, you know, when we think about kiss, we think about Gene Simmons. And who is Gene Simmons? Gene Simmons is this bright, sweet, intellectual kid and comic book loving kid from New York City who one day put on black leather and grease paint and reinvented himself as a rock and roll devil. It's Ig's story arc. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's really almost no possible devil reference in the book that isn't touched upon, whether it's whether it's Kiss, whether it's The Exorcist. At one point, Ig is walking around uh, wearing a, a, a blue skirt uh, and so is a devil in a blue dress. Um, and, you know, uh, again, I mean, you got to keep yourself entertained somehow and, you know. Well, there's a great anecdote about Kiss in, in the book. And, <laughs> yeah. and, what's, and I think it really speaks to the power of fables. Uh, it, and it's nice to have that kind of put in that kind of silly way, but it's really, it's, it's also strikes you. I have a half memory of hearing this when I was a little kid. And I can't remember if I read it in a Kiss fan magazine or if some kid told it to me but even then I knew it couldn't it didn't make sense it was some story about the guys in Kiss being on an airplane and the airplane was going to crash and then Paul Stanley looked out the window and Jesus Christ was hanging to the wing and he was like trying to like mend the broken wing and they all landed safely I think that was Kiss it's I put it in the book anyway and you know but even when I heard it I thought wait a minute aren't the guys in Kiss Jewish <laughs> you know but but um so anyway, that was back from the good old days, though, of, you know, where where it wasn't a, being a by nature, being a rock star meant having a legend, you know, and, and no one was better at making legends than the guys in Kiss. You know, I think their legend, their marketing, their makeup and everything was really 90 percent of the appeal. And the music was almost sort of almost as an afterthought, you know, came in <laughs> the fact that they had a couple of great rock songs was sort of, you know, of much lesser importance. And uh, accidental. <laughs> right. Yeah, accidental. Right. Um, a as a writer, you're, you know, you have this uh, great facility for language. Um, could you talk about um, uh, the times that you've like, you know, you seem to like to perform your stuff. Could you talk about, is there some kind of, as you're writing, do you think about, wow, I'm going to read this in front of people and I'm going like, <laughs> to oh, blow yeah. their socks off? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, like most writers, I'm kind of a homebody. I'm not much of a, pub, I don't have much of a public persona, and, but you have to sort of find one because you go out on the road to read. And I remember for Heart Shaped Box, you know, I was, I had to go out and read it for the first time and I was very nervous. I, I you know, the first night I was going to read Heart Shaped Box, I had to read in front of a hometown crowd and there was like 120 people there, you know, huge crowd and my legs were shaking. My mouth was dry. I was really nervous and I was going to read a section from the beginning of the book. And the book is partly, Heart Shaped Box is partly about the relationship between a burned out heavy metal musician in his 50s and his much younger groupie girlfriend. And when we first meet them at the beginning of Heart Shaped Box, their, their relationship is, is in ruins. They're almost ready to break up and they're having an argument. And this was the section I read from. And I was I was so nervous and the language is a little bit salty, but I thought, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to go for it. And and people will laugh and will relax me. So I'm reading from their argument. She says, you're a sympathetic son of a bitch. You know that? And he says, you want sympathy? Go fuck James Taylor. <laughs> 
And as soon as I as soon as I read it, these three little kids appeared in the crowd, and I swear they hadn't been there 30 seconds before, but all of a sudden they had huge grins on their faces. They were loving it, and their parents were holding their hands, and the parents were looking a whole lot less happy. And, um, but, uh, but, uh, but it did relax me. I did feel better after that. So once I got, once I got the big and nasty out. Now I got to ask you, you said, um, that you sometimes, uh, write, uh, uh, you write this comic book, uh, lock and key. Right. When, how do you know that something, a piece of writing is destined for a comic book and not just prose? Well, I don't always, you know, uh, I, so I have this occasional, just to set it up for people, have this occasional comic book called Lock and Key, and uh, Lock and Key begins with a home invasion that claims the life of the father and this family, and it's a horrifying home invasion, and uh, after the, the kids and the mom survive, and the mom packs the kids up, moves them across the country to rebuild their lives in the small New England town of Lovecraft, Massachusetts, and just <laughs> as a general rule, if you've survived one kind of horror, moving to a small town called Lovecraft is just not a good plan. It's, it's really doomed for, you know, for even worse. But they didn't listen to me, so they moved there anyway. Um, but the funny thing is, the funny thing is about you know Lock and Key. Heart Shaped Box was my first novel, but I wrote four books before Heart Shaped Box that I was never able to sell. And the fourth of them, the very last thing before Heart Shaped Box was a novel called The Briars. And in it, these two kids, one is very intelligent but emotionally disassociated, the other is very thuggish, they spend their summer at this rotting old New England house called The Briars, and they invent a god which they begin to worship and which tells them to kill. We don't know whether the god is real or this sort of psychological figment that they've created, but they go on this killing spree and perform a terrible home invasion. One of the kids in the story was Sam Lesser, a guy named Sam Lesser, all those events became, even though the book never sold and never did anything with it, it as a failure as a book, but all those events wound up getting reprocessed and essentially became the first issue of Lock and Key. Sam Lesser is there. We have the Rotting House, only instead of the Briars, the, the Rotting House has become Key House, which is the central central setting for the story. Um, we have the thuggish friend, and they go on the killing spree, and there's, and, and there's also the Dark God. And um, So I don't, it's a corny thing to say, it's an old cliche, but I don't really believe in creative failures. I just think sometimes you work on a story that doesn't gel, but which will eventually become rich fertilizer for a story that does work. And uh, that's been true throughout my career. I've been speaking with Joe Hill. His new book is Horns. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Rick, thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.